Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome. It's a delight to have everyone here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you and acceptable to you through Christ our Lord. For we pray in his name. Amen. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. And Advent is probably the most misunderstood season in the church calendar. Not that a whole lot is understood about the church calendar in general, but many assume that Advent is simply a preparation to celebrate Jesus's birth and They'd be wrong, not entirely wrong, but substantially so, because as Fleming Rutledge writes, Advent is not really the season of preparing for Jesus's birth, as though he never came in the first place. Advent is the season of preparation for his coming again. And so do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? The New Testament does. Every apostolic writer insists upon it. It's mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times, almost one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament somehow alludes to the second coming again. And so everything about the Christian life is influenced by it, if not predicated upon his second coming or second advent. So again, do you believe in the second coming? Is your life any way shaped by it? Do you, do you prepare for it? Are you preparing for it anyway? Are you watching and waiting for it because those are the twin themes of Advent, watching and waiting. Not for a baby wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a manger, because we can prepare for that with holiday parties and a little bit of shopping, but preparing for the one who said what was just read to you, the one who's going to come, as Fleming Rutledge also says, to call the entire universe into judgment, to come to bring history as we know it to a close, to come to bring his everlasting kingdom to pass. That is what Advent seeks to prepare us for. And friends, you are preparing for something. Something in your life, you expect it to come. You're waiting for it. You're watching for it. You are preparing for it, whatever it is to come. So what is that? A little over a week ago, right before Thanksgiving, my youngest son, Pal, and I were at a hunting lease. There's a storage container on that lease that's been converted into a cabin. And after hunting that morning, we were back at the at the storage unit, and I was trying to cook eggs for breakfast on an electric stove, but the power clicked off because it's 
generated by solar panels, and it was a cloudy day. So I went out and I tried to start the generator, but the generator's starter is faulty, and so no eggs for breakfast. So I cleaned up, and we went about our day doing some other stuff. I came back about an hour later, and I noticed there was a bunch of dust, it seemed, around that area of the lease. And the closer I got, I realized it wasn't dust from clearing cedar trees or something, but it was smoke from the container. Because what had happened was the sun had come out, the solar panels had kicked on the electricity, and the dish towel that I had used to clean up the eggs on the electric stove was on there, and I hadn't turned off the electric stove. So the dish towel caught on fire, and the wood paneling caught on fire, the ceiling caught on fire, the ent- all the cabinets caught on fire. I slowly opened the door to peer in, and more smoke billowed out, and everything was ablaze. It's terrifying. So I ran and found a, a fire extinguisher and used that. Uh, it helped a little bit. It didn't put out the fire. And then Pal and I and one of the ranch hands started carrying buckets of water, throwing them on the fire like a 19th century fire brigade. And somehow, almost miraculously, we put the fire out. But not before it consumed everything in the kitchen area and generated so much smoke and heat that everything was ruined. And some of you are wondering, do things like this happen to Tim so that he will have sermon illustrations? Here's what I thought. Afterward, I thought I was utterly unprepared for that. Never in my wildest dreams did I wake up Wednesday morning and think a massive fire is going to be a part of my day. But what if I'd known it was coming? What if I had been preparing for it and waiting and watching for it? What do we need to be prepared for Jesus's second coming? Well, two points this morning. Number one, the setting. Number two, the need. First of all, the setting of First Peter. The setting is the setting here of, of our lives as well. This New Testament letter is the one that we're going to focus upon for the rest of Advent because it repeatedly mentions Jesus's second coming, making this letter and its setting an Advent setting because Peter is writing from Rome and he is writing to these Christians and he knows that something is coming to them and for them, something that's going to change everything in their life. Because writing from Rome, he sees what's happening with Nero. Nero is the emperor at the time, and he was a madman. He notoriously murdered his own mother and then two of his wives. And in 64 AD, he set the entire city of Rome on fire in order to clear out land that he could build his own luxurious and new palace for himself. So 70% of the city burned, half of its population was made homeless, and he hated Christians. In fact, he blamed the fire on Christians. And this letter was written probably right around that same time, maybe right before the fire. And Peter can see what is brewing socially and culturally and politically and what's about to come for all Christians throughout the entire empire. And that is a major empire-wide state-sponsored persecution of Christians. He can see it coming. And he's writing to them saying, be prepared, wait for this watch for it. It is coming. And notice what he calls these Christians here in verse one. There's one word, one label or designation that he gives, which serves as a framework through which we're to understand everything that he writes in this letter. But also it serves as a framework for how we're to understand ourselves as Christians. And what is that label? What's that designation there in verse one? Do you see it? It's this word exiles. So now what is an exile? You may hear that word and may think immigrant, And there 
They're similar, but not the same. In fact, what's similar about them is that both types of people are on the move from one country to another, but that's really where the similarities end because an immigrant is someone that's leaving their home country for good with no expectation of returning. In fact, they're seeking to make that new country that they're entering their home for good. And and that is not an exile. An exile is someone who has a home country. They're not currently there for whatever reason, but they want to be. They want to go home. They're expecting and making plans and designs to go home. And here's the point. The point is, if you are a Christian, you are not a spiritual immigrant. You're not someone who is seeking to more fully and completely be a part of the country and culture that you've come into, whatever that is. You're not seeking to make that country a permanent resident. Immigrants seek assimilation. They seek to become more and more conformed and like the culture and the people all around them, not exiles. Exiles maintain their distinction from the culture and the the country around them. And that is why he uses this word. He uses it to describe how Christians are always to relate to the world, regardless of what country or culture you might be a part of. And what he is saying is that until Christ returns and makes this world an entirely new place, this world is not your home. So don't treat it as such. Don't work to assimilate. You're you're not an immigrant. This is not who you are. But some of us, however, and, and all of us in some ways, and at some times, but some of us in many ways, even right now, are seeking to conform. We're, we're worrying about it. We're working toward it. We're trying to assimilate. We're trying to figure out ways and plans to become as much a part of this world or this culture or as successful in it as possible. We're hoping, we're trying to prepare our kids in order to be more fully woven into the fabric of, of this world and this society as much as possible, even more than us. We need to be honest. And that is that for many of us, it's an, it's an immigration mindset that drives how it is that we relate to everything in this world and not an exilic one. And how would you know? How would you know which, which mindset or orientation governs the way that you relate to the world around you? We could look at simply two things that Peter mentions here in this passage. He, he speaks about both money and suffering here in relation to the second coming. In verse five, he speaks about the second coming by speaking about the last time. And then in verse seven, he speaks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anytime he uses that language, that's what he's referring to as the second coming. And before that first reference, Peter speaks about money. And then in between those two references, bookending everything he says there about this topic, he speaks about suffering. So look at verse four. Peter says, if you are a Christian, you possess an inheritance. Arguably, Peter's other fundamental image or idea for what it means to be a Christian is to be a child. Everything in verse or in chapter one and chapter two revolve especially around the teaching that to be a Christian is to be a child, a child who belongs to a merciful heavenly father who's rich and not rich in a simply earthly sense, like a a car dealer or a beer distributor in a small town. If you're from a small town, you know the two richest families in any small town are beer distributors and car dealers, and that's who they are. God is not rich like that. He's heavenly rich. His wealth is an otherworldly wealth. It's not simply monetary or material, but psychological and mental and emotional and relational and spiritual. All of the things that money can't buy in this world comprise his wealth, like true emotional peace and unending, perfectly secure relationships that are always life-giving or freedom, true freedom, Freedom from things like fear and worry 
and, and anxiety and despair and the experience of joy or awe or wonder at something transcendent in your life, something far bigger than you or anything that this world could offer. Those are the things that we desperately want. Those are the things that we seek, whether we realize it or not. Those are the things that we spend money on, but we can't really buy, but they're all a part of God's wealth and the inheritance that his kingdom brings, which is why at the end of the revelation in in chapter 21, verse 21, it speaks about heaven coming to earth and it speaks about not the streets of heaven, but the street in the kingdom of God. And do you remember what it says that it's made of, the street in the kingdom of God? It's made of gold, gold that is, that is transparent like glass. And what does that look like? I have no idea, but why does it speak like that? It's to say that what we value most on earth, gold, the singular greatest symbol of wealth here in this world, it's nothing more than asphalt in the kingdom of God. It's nothing more than that which we just walk upon without even noticing it. When's the last time you noticed asphalt? Never. And that is what it will be with what constitutes earthly wealth now. You'll never even think about it. You won't even notice it. How much do you think about wealth right now? A lot, I would say. Tis the season to think about it. It's all we hear about right now is our spending on Black Friday or or Cyber Monday, or inflation, or the interest rate still being high, or food prices still soaring, or credit card debt, apparently it's the highest in American history, or all the the defaults on car loans that are rising and rising right now. Money is almost all that we hear about right now, but then we come in here into worship in the midst of the first Sunday in Advent, and we hear Peter say that as an exile, someone whose home is not this world, but the heavenly realm, that will someday invade and transform this earthly one. You as an exile have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade. It's imperishable. It can't burn down like the the storage container cabin. It's undefiled. And this, this Greek word means not stained, means it's somehow not connected to anything unethical or immoral or harmful to anyone. And let's be honest, It's hard for any wealth in this world to be completely and perfectly undefiled like that. It's also unfading. All the gifts that you're buying right now for Christmas, all the gifts that you will receive, they will fade. They will lose their value. Your children, after you give them their gifts, about 10 minutes for some of them, they'll be completely uninterested in those gifts that you've given them. If they're little, they'll probably like the box more than the gift that you've given to them. All of your gifts will fade, will wear out, or will be consumed, all of them, but not your heavenly inheritance. So you're either a spiritual religious immigrant that fixates upon wealth and the things of this world, or what Peter speaks about, this spiritual religious exile. And you will hear him say, you have another worldly inheritance that makes every form of wealth in this world utterly unnoticeable. So before I go on, just imagine this for a second. Imagine that you're a billionaire. You valet your car at a downtown restaurant one evening here in Austin. You come out, you, you have three $10 bills. You give one $10 bill to the valet and then you go home. You get home and you realize that you should have two $10 bills, but you only have one. So you either dropped it, you mistakenly gave the valet two of them. So what do you do? You get in your car, drive back downtown Austin, ask the valet for one of those $10 bills back. You call the police and, and, and tell them that you lost a $10 bill? Do you start looking for it all over the street? Do you do that? Of course not. You're a billionaire. 
And $10 to a billionaire is nothing. And Peter is saying, you're a spiritual, heavenly, otherworldly billionaire beyond anything that you could ever imagine. Someday you will walk upon that which passes for wealth in this world without even noticing it. And so you have to ask yourself, do you live now like that is true? Do you live like an exile in this world? Or do you live like an immigrant, particularly with your money? Are you wearing yourself out to get it? Are you sacrificing everything, even your family, your marriage maybe for that? Or are you spending and spending and spending inordinately on things that are, that are perishable and defiled and that will fade? Or are you, are you, do you have the capacity even to give it away like a billionaire with $10? Friends, your relationship with money will tell you how it is that you understand yourself as an immigrant or as an exile, because that's the setting the setting of this letter. It's the setting of our lives. So point two, what do we need if we're going to live as Peter directs and teaches as an exile? He says what we need is to be born again. It's the first thing that he emphasizes here in this letter, and really everything flows from it in the entire letter. He says here that this is what we need in order to live in between Christ's two advents. So what does it mean to be born again? Peter doesn't explain it. He's an apostle, but I really do wish that he would have explained it here. He just mentions it. And then he assumes that his readers know what he's talking about, and he goes on to apply it. So it's a difficult question. I preached upon this, an entire sermon about what it means to be born again several years ago, right before COVID in 2020. And I told you then that being born again and born again Christianity, it's not a type of Christianity. It is Christianity. Similar to the second coming, every New Testament author mentions it repeatedly, every single one of them, Jesus included. One of his first conversations in the book of John was with this man named Nicodemus, where he famously says, you must be born again. And then later in the New Testament, James, Jesus's half-brother, speaks about faith without works being a dead faith in his letter, meaning that true faith in Christ is not predicated upon some sort of mental assent to, to theological facts nor is it proven by, by simply what we say because we can say anything. Rather, it flows from a new spiritual life and a new spiritual vitality that has that mysteriously come alive deep within our souls and results in an entirely new life in every aspect of our life. And then there's this famous story in the Old Testament, which I've told you about before from Ezekiel, where God gives Ezekiel this vision, it's a terrifying vision, of a valley of bones where the Israel and the Hebrew armies, they've been utterly slaughtered, and that's all that's left, bright, dry, white bones. It's this unmistakable image of lifelessness. There's nothing more lifeless than dry bones. And God is telling Ezekiel through this vision that that is exactly what the people of God are like right then and right there. Yes, militarily, because they've been defeated, but also, and even more so, socially, culturally, religiously, and spiritually. And the point is, is that's not just Israel then, that's everyone always, apart from the grace of God and the knowledge of him that comes by faith. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the teacher of the law. In John chapter three, you must be born again. You're like that valley of dry bones. That's who you are, spiritually dead. You need new spiritual life breathed into your empty, dry soul. And Peter believes that that happens. In fact, he believes that it has happened to these Christians to whom he writes that God has, as he says, caused them to be born again. And how? What does he say in verse three? How has he caused them to be born again? 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which tells us so much about Jesus. And what it tells us about Jesus is that he became that valley of dry bones for us, that his entire life was lived out in that valley, but especially on the cross, he became everything that that vision portrays, utterly dead, having his his soul torn apart from his body, having his soul abandoned by God for us because of us, our sin and our need. In that passage, God asked Ezekiel a famous question. Son of man, can these bones live? And it's one of those questions that echoes and reverberates out throughout the scriptures until Jesus and until the resurrection when it finally gets answered. And there's a divine history altering answer. And the answer is an emphatic yes, that that which is dead can live. And the Holy Spirit raises Jesus by returning to him to his body and to his soul, all the life that was his, is his, and will always be his. And Peter assumes that that has happened to you, that if you are a Christian, that true life, true divine spiritual life resides within you. It resides already within your soul and someday it will be poured out upon your body, that you've already been raised spiritually from the dead and someday you will be raised physically. That is Christianity. It is born again Christianity, born through faith. And so have you been born again? It's really the main question. And Peter gives us one primary sign by which we can know whether or not we have. And I've already mentioned it. It's suffering. Because in this opening passage, where he mentions the second coming of Christ multiple times, says that we must be born again, he applies this new life to two things, money, which I've already mentioned in verse four and five, but then also suffering in verse six and seven. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you are suffering significantly. Your cancer continues to turn your body more and more into something like that valley of dry bones or some other disease. For others of you, it's your marriage. Your relationship with your spouse feels dry, brittle, and broken and fragile. Or for others of you, it's It's this new life that you have living without a spouse. It's the first Advent season, the first holiday season without a spouse, living a life that you never imagined that you would live. For others of you, you've never married, though you've always wanted to, and you're wondering if that will ever be something that your life will have. Or for others of you, it's your children and their struggles, or it's financial struggles. Whatever it is, it's something. Something in your life has burned down, and you're staring at the ashes, And you're asking that question, can these bones live? Can any new life come from these ashes? I can't help but think of Cooper Sayer right now when I say that. Some of you know who Cooper is. He's a junior at UT, went to Regents for a long time, and then also Hyde Park. He was a part of our summer college fellows program this past summer. And three weeks ago, he was in a horrific car accident, and he still lies unconscious in a coma three weeks later in hospital bed. Imagine his parents this season, waiting and watching day after day by him at his bedside, asking that question, can these bones live? And what's the answer? The answer is is obviously yes. The Lord can wake him up. The Lord can heal him. And I would ask you to pray earnestly that that would happen. But even as I've been asked, what if he doesn't? What then? What do his parents do? What do his family do? What do they 
wait for? What should they expect? And what does Peter say? He doesn't simply speak of suffering because that alone is not the sign of having been born again because all people suffer, Christians and non-Christians alike, because this world until Christ returns is a world filled with suffering. There's no escaping it. There's no avoiding it. So what does Peter say is the primary sign by which we can trust that we've been born again? It's joy in verse six. He speaks about the revelation of Jesus at the end of verse five. And then he says, in this, you rejoice. And then he begins to speak about suffering. So it's suffering, yes, but it's joy in the midst of suffering, inexplicable joy, joy that, that seems so incongruent with the circumstances that you're living through, so incongruent that it's almost inappropriate. It's, it's deeper than the circumstances could ever reach in your, in your life and in your soul, so very deep within you. That is the sign of God living in you, deep within you, like a well flowing with new life despite what's happening above the surface. So do you know that this morning? Do you know that type of joy? Because you will know it when you see it and you experience it in someone else. That happened to Alyssa and I this week. We went to dinner with a young couple who worships here at All Saints. And as we heard their story and, and about the various things that have happened in their life, we came to understand how much they've suffered and how the various trials that are before them will continue on in their life together. And it's far more than most people their age will ever know. And I wish I had the time and the words to tell you, the words adequate to describe to you the joy that exuded and radiated from them and between them. It was palpable. It was arresting, almost startling. It was certainly so very, very attractive. Later on that evening after dinner, we were at home and Alyssa was making some tea and she said from the kitchen, I just can't stop thinking about that couple and their joy. And so what was it? It was Jesus, Jesus within them, Jesus's life and his joy, Jesus's very life having been born in them and seen and more fully tasted in and through them because of the suffering that they have known. It's what Peter speaks about here at the end of our passage in verse seven, when he mentions glory. It was this otherworldly, heavenly beauty and weight that's experienced in people who know Jesus and who have been born again as witnessed by their joy in their suffering. So again, do you know it? Because you can. Believe in Christ. And pray for the joy that he alone can give and expect it. Wait for it. Stop waiting for anything else more than him and beyond and, and, and more importantly than the life that he gives. Stop waiting primarily for that job or, or that windfall or, or that guy to ask you out or that spouse to come or that person who so, so egregiously wronged you to finally apologize. Stop waiting to fully and finally get well and get healthy. You may never. And what if you don't? I promise you, whatever it is that you're waiting for beyond and even more than Jesus, even if you never receive it, when he returns and you receive him and everything that he brings, it will be enough. It will be enough. Infinitely more than enough. You are a spiritual heavenly billionaire. 
So stand firm in that which you already possess and that which you will someday fully and completely receive. And so wait for him. Stand firm waiting for him. He will come and he will give you all that you have ever needed, desired, and wanted. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would, by your spirit, give us the grace necessary in order to believe all of that which we have read and heard this morning. Make us into those people who know you, who love you, who wait for you expectantly, trusting that our lives are hidden in Christ and he will return for us someday. We pray this in his name. Amen.